and I'm glad you're here. And we've obviously been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, and working through some of the different lessons that Jesus was teaching then and trying to obviously, we want to apply them as best we can to our lives because the Word is living and it is relevant um, and it is true for our lives today. All right, amen? Genesis 1.26 is probably in, in some ways one of the most frightening verses and uh, to its implications, right, in my mind. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And if you think about that, that God created mankind in his image, in his likeness, that we are all as human beings created with that image and born with that image, right? And all that preceded us were and all that will follow us will be as well until the end of time. And just the enormity, right? What does that really mean to have the image of God within each one of us? That's just a lot to contain in human shell. All the emotions that God feels, we feel. That makes our emotions good. Joy, happiness, love are given to us to feel, just as God does. Even sorrow, anger, and jealousy, which we think of as negative emotions, are felt by God and are given to us by God. It's our humanness, our brokenness, if you will, that perverts those emotions into something else, something that God did not intend. Love is one of the strongest emotions, and in a lot of ways it can become the most twisted. You can't watch a true crime show today without love and affection twisting into hate and violence in some people. And Jesus talks about these in his Sermon on the Mount and these feelings and the implications that come from it. In Matthew 5, we're starting with verse 21 through 26, and it says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is, an, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of fire of he- in the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So I want to start off by agreeing on some terms. If you have been around the church for a number of years, you are well-versed with the King James Version, or used to the King James Version of the Bible. And there you will see, thou shalt not kill. I'm reading from the NIV, and all the modern versions that I'm aware of will say, Thou shalt not murder. You've seen this also if you're, even if you're not familiar with the church itself, right? Plaques and signs and decorations, all, everything that lists the Ten Commandments generally will use 
the King James translation. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't pretend to be. I have barely managed to master the English language. But the resources that I've checked, who are more scholarly than myself, seem to agree that the literal translation of the Hebrew in the, of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. So what's the difference? Why do I call this out? Let's look at the definition of kill. It says to cause the death of a person or animal or other living thing, to put an end to or cause the failure or defeat of something in the life. Murder, on the other hand, the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another, to kill someone unlawfully and with premeditation. So there is a difference between simply killing and murdering. The second being the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. So I'm not going to wade into the debate of can Christians kill but not murder? Are there justifiable reasons? There are very valid and well-meaning people on both sides of the argument. And there's scripture to support both thoughts. And I'm not going to prejudge either at this point. I just want to call out that there is a difference. And you will see a difference when you read the newer translations. But let me see at this point, it's kind of important to me the distinction because when I first decided to go into ministry full-time, I was still in the Marine Corps. I had two years left in my enlistment, and I had to wrestle with this. No matter what you see in the advertising on TV and, and the slick marketing that goes on, the armed forces of the United States exist for two reasons, to kill people and to blow things up. They are used for a lot of different other things, very valid humanitarian things and very useful missions, those, at its core, that is what the military exists to do. That's something that I had to wrestle with. Being in the Marine Corps at the time, I had to come to grips with what does the scripture say versus what am I called to do by my government that I have volunteered to serve. So the question, though, comes down to are, are you capable? So Jesus brings this up, this idea of murder from the Ten Commandments, and he's reiterating it for the disciples and those listening for a reason, if I were to ask you, are you capable of murder? The majority of you would say, of course not, right? I could never do that. I think the real answer, though, is yes. And there's some reasons that, please don't start throwing things at me, right, if you disagree. But if given the right set of circumstances and the right motivation, pushing the right buttons, if you will, I think we're all capable of thinking, I could kill somebody. I could kill that person right? Be so angry with somebody, right? To entertain that thought at some point, no matter how fleeting. But, praise God, we don't act on those feelings, but we're all capable. And that's sin nature. That's where our sin nature comes into play. We are born into a sinful and broken world. That's just the truth of it. And we're sinful creatures because we're born into that world. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are all born into a broken, unrighteous world. We are all subject to the effects and the impacts of that world on us and our behavior. But praise God for Jesus, who freed us from that burden. But he's really calling us a task in the Sermon on the Mount because he's taking the law, which all the Jews would have been very familiar with from the time they were young. 
and gone to religious schools as they grew up, and they would have learned the oral traditions as well. And see, that's one of the things that Jesus is really attacking here, is the oral traditions. Is he's saying, he starts off with saying, you've heard it said. That means the smartest guys in the room have said, you've heard it added on to scripture, this. Because what they would do is they would take the law, and this is true for not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the law of Moses, and they would begin to define it. They would take what it says and they would say, okay, if it's the Sabbath, you can't work. That's the simple part of the Ten Commandments. Now they would say, okay, well, what does work mean? Work means if you're traveling, you can't take more than X number of steps on that day. You can't do this. You can do this. And they very narrowly go through and define what work means. And in the process, we're kind of losing the spirit and and the intention of the law and what God had given to the people of Israel. They were defining this little narrow box, what it meant to murder. But Jesus is telling them, if you're even angry with a brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. Not just if you take harm against them, if you're angry with them and you pursue that anger and you hold on to that anger, it's just as bad. And again, we think, well, how can that be as bad as murdering somebody, being mad at them? But remember, in God's eyes, there is no hierarchy of sin. You don't get less punishment because you only sin this much and this other person sin this much. It's the same regardless of little, big, or in between. Because God is perfect. And any sin is offensive to God. And so it just kind of creates this situation where we want to validate ourselves by creating hierarchies and levels. Jesus is redefining this from a narrow physical act to a condition of the heart is where sin really originates, is in the heart. We don't fall into sin. It's not something that we trip and we fall into like a mud puddle. It's something that grows inside of us. We have weaknesses. We have fears. We have things inside of us that God didn't intend that incubates sin inside of us. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You see the process here? It starts as a little seed inside of us, and it begins to grow as we hold on to it, and we nurture it, and it grows into sin, which leads to death. This is a lot. Any sin, one big or little, separates us from God, period. But we have the same forgiveness, right? And that's the glorious answer, is regardless of what we've done, we still have the same forgiveness, too. So sin goes within, within us based on desires and things that we hold on to. And we really need to watch our hearts. Now, Jesus here is talking specifically about brothers and sisters. And when he says that, he means, literally, it translates as fellow believers. And we're going to get to neighbors in a minute. They're coming. But right now, he's talking about fellow believers. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount it would have been fellow Israelites. Your treatment and your attitude toward your fellow Christians is a pretty good reflection of your spiritual condition. Verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And who has not been angry with a fellow Christian one one time or another? We're human beings. You know, we have failings. Um, We get upset with people, whether legitimately or not. And it, it just all comes back to how we treat it. What do we do with it? Because that's what Jesus is talking about, is not about 
feeling angry with somebody, it's what we do with it. What do we do with that feeling? Do we deal with it or do we hold on to it? And do we let it nurture and grow into sin? When you have a conflict with a fellow believer, go and resolve it. Go take care of it. Don't let it fester and grow inside of you. Conflict can affect your physical health as well as your spiritual health. It will drag you down. The first church that I pastored, there was a schism, and I was supported and voted in by basically one family and their supporters and voted against by the other. Never should have taken the position, but what did I know at the time? But there was a lot of conflict from the beginning. But I soldiered on, thinking that if I treated everyone right, if I treated everyone fairly, if I tried to do my best job that I could, that it would minimize that conflict. But it did nothing but continue to fester because I wasn't the cause, I was just one of the symptoms. The cause was much deeper and much further back. And any decision that I made was opposed by one side, supported by the other, and it just created more and more tension. And it brewed, and that tension brewed and festered inside of me because I could feel it was going on. And rather than go and deal with it like I should have, I continued to focus on the work. I avoided. And it grew and stressed me out, and it stressed Margaret out, and then it started to stress our kids out because they could feel it too. And if you ask them, they will tell you that those years in that town were probably the worst that they can remember growing up. They really see it as a, as a dark time, and that, that's sad. You know, that is really sad. It all comes down to me not dealing with conflict, conflict that was affecting me, and them not dealing with the conflict that was affecting them. And you see how this begins to build and grow. It's not an isolation. It will affect and eat away like acid at everything that you love and hold dear. This applies to Christians not only here, but here, the larger small c church as a whole. There are a number of Christians that I vehemently disagree with on some issues. They include things like sexuality, marriage, the sanctity of human life. Name your topic of the day that divides us. But I will not, I will not tell them they are not true Christians because I disagree with them. I will not tell them they're going to hell for their beliefs. Even if I believe it, I wouldn't tell them that. I will not call them, as Jesus is saying, raka, or fool. When Jesus says what you call them is important, the words that he's using is really important because they are implying non-belief. So all through Scripture, especially the Psalms, it tells us that godliness and wisdom go directly together, go hand in hand. That the wise person believes in God and the fool rejects him. So to call someone a fool is to call them a non-believer. That's what Jesus is addressing here. They knew that. Wisdom comes with God. Foolishness is against God and separate from God. And so that applies to us as well. To challenge somebody else's faith because of a disagreement, to call them you're not a Christian is a very dangerous place to be. There was a church that Margaret and I attended for a short time, the Church of Christ. The first sermon that we heard going into that church, literally the whole sermon, was attacking just about every denomination that you can think of, every mainline denomination, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, and especially Catholics. I mean, he just went down the list and how bad they all were. That's devastating. That's going to kill the body. It's cancer that eats us from the inside. We can settle our differences. We can disagree, and we can argue Scripture, and we should, 
but we cannot eat ourselves from within. Now that we've identified kind of the problem areas, we've got to make sure that we clear our conscience before we approach God. The tradition for the Jews would be that if you had a problem with a brother, if there was an, an issue going on, go and offer a sacrifice to clear yourself before God. So that would cover your sins, kind of make everything okay again. And Israel had become used to offering those sacrifices, to feeling satisfied like God was okay with them. But that's not the way it was. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is by a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. See, even as far back as the Psalms, the psalmist knew it's not sacrifices that God was looking for. That's not the point. The point is not to cover ourselves and make ourselves feel better because our sin is hidden from God. The point is to confront it and do away with it and cleanse in here so that we can be pure before God and have a, and have a pure heart before him. So much more today as we give our offerings, as we worship in song, as we worship in communion, things that are all meant to draw us closer to God, will not if we've not first repented from our sins. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I would anxiously desire to be at peace with all men before I attempt to worship God, lest I present to God the sacrifice of fools. And the question really comes down to, if you can't love believers, how are you going to love non-believers? If you can't love people that believe the same things that you do and have the same priorities that you do, how are you going to love people that are completely different than you? So love. The second half of our verses this morning starts in Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I read that and I'll go, what more do I need to say? I'm only going to muddy the water. I mean, Jesus makes it pretty clear, I think. He starts with that same formula, you've heard it said. He says, I'm going to demolish everything that you've learned from all those supposed wise men that have come before you, and I'm going to turn it all on your head. He said, love is meant for everyone, not just those that you love, not just those that love you, but those that hate you as well. Really? In Western culture, we really overuse the word love. We love foods. We love music. We love our guys. We love our cars. Some of us do. And it kind of gets diluted. It kind of gets muddied, if you will. If I tell you that I love this building, you would not take that as the same when I tell you I love my sister, which is different than if I tell you I love my wife, which better be. But there are three Greek words primarily that describe love in the Bible. There is philio, which is brotherly love, where we get Philadelphia from. Eros, which is a romantic love. And then there is agape. And agape is the word that Jesus uses here. And it is a word to describe God love for us. 
And what Jesus is saying is, as God has loved you, you love the people that hate you. Love is not just born out of feelings, emotions, familiarity, or attraction. And that's kind of one of the things that we tend to lose more today, um, is that we throw around love so commonly that it, it can becomes familiar and that it doesn't have the impact that we think that it does. True love, agape love, is born out of will and as a choice. It requires faithfulness, it requires commitment, and it requires sacrifice without expecting a single thing in return. One of the most valuable things that Margaret and I ever learned in marriage counseling from the same pastor that got me into ministry is that marriage is not 50-50. If it's 50-50, if it's give and take, there's a time you're going to give, but then you expect something in return. And if you don't get that thing, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be hurt. You're going to feel unfulfilled. Because I've been giving, 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 and I didn't get anything in return. True love, agape love, looks towards the other person's best interests and their needs and what fulfills them. And imagine what a marriage would be like if both partners did that. If I only looked for after my wife's best interests and her needs and what fulfills her, and at the same time, that's all she looked at, who would go without? Who would lose? There is no losing in that kind of a situation. But it requires a lot of sacrifice and a lot of giving of the self to accomplish that. The problem is we live in a sinful world. And Jesus says the rain falls on everyone equally, the believer and the non-believer. Things happen no matter who we are. Injustices befall us equally. You know, loved ones die. Unemployment, financial hardship, hunger, homelessness. They befall Christians and non-Christians alike. The difference is non-Christians will curse God and men when tragedy strikes. They want to strike out and hurt and punish the world when tragedy strikes, when things don't go the way that they think they should. Christians react just the opposite, or we should. When we're hurt, we love. We praise God when we suffer and love others when they do us harm. That's completely backwards from the way that we think as people. There's so much conflict and hate and destruction in the country right now. So many emotions seething to the surface. You know, large cities like um, Portland and Minneapolis um, seem to be tearing themselves apart. So many people angry and just hating life in general. Changing so much, attacking, diffusing so much hate and anger just seems impossible. And in a way it is. But what is possible is to change one life. I'm not going to go to Portland and stand in front of the mob and tell them how much Jesus loves them and expects them just to fall and, you know, repent. Now, God can do anything he wants. I'm not dismissing that. But it's generally not how change comes, right? We didn't get into this position overnight. We're not going to change this position overnight. But it takes the church taking responsibility for loving other people to change the world. And we can. We can set the world on fire for God by serving people that hate us, by serving people that don't care about us, that don't even know us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46 to 48, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? 
Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are born with that image of God, with that perfection inside of us. Yes, the world breaks it down, the world corrupts it, and makes it sinful. But we still have that image of God within us. We still have the capacity to love everyone that we meet and to impact them with that love. Don't preach, just love. Don't judge, just love. Don't hesitate, just love. You want the world to change? It's up to you. We can affect change in this world one life at a time. Maybe we can't bring a stadium full of people to Christ like Billy Graham, but we can bring one neighbor. We can bring one family member, one coworker. We can love them to God. Not love them to death. We can love them to God. Love them to life. We can affect the pain and hurt and the anger in this world one life at a time. People are not our enemies, folks. Satan is. Satan is the one that broke this world in a sin through temptation. Our choice, of course, but that's what he wanted to achieve, and he did. We can either embrace that, which is easy, or we can take the higher road, the harder road, the road less traveled, as Mr. Frost once said, and we can love. Um, it's not easy, and it's not cheap, and it's going to cost us a lot personally. Love is expensive. It costs you in here, but it's worth it. Just love one person, and we can change the world. All right, Marianne, you can come up. And I, I, I want to offer you that same possibility. If there's someone that you need to pray for, if there's someone that you need, uh, if you need to be prayed for, if you are interested in what is this love thing all about, you're welcome to come up and talk to us. I'll be here. One or two of the elders will be here. We can go in the prayer room. There'll be people in the prayer room waiting. It is all about God's love for us and sharing that, passing that on, if you will. And I don't want anybody here to leave without it.